Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A small reminder before you begin this podcast, guys. If you would like to check out History Podcasters by searching them in Google or iTunes, then you'll come across an absolute treasure trove of collaborative efforts between all of us podcasters as we try to band together and make a really special product. On that podcast feed, there's episodes which include myself interviewing Benjamin Ashwell from the Italian Unification podcast. There's also other interviews between other podcasters, as well as collage episodes in which we all discuss a certain theme. I'd highly recommend you check it out. That again is History Podcasters. Thanks, guys, and enjoy the episode. This is a war between God and the devil. If he is with God, he must join me. If he is for the devil, he must fight me. There is no third way. King Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden Albrecht, Wenzel Eusebius von Wallenstein, knew he was on borrowed time. In 1629, his standing was at its peak. His power was centred upon his command of the largest army seen at the time, at least 100,000 men strong, while his word was law throughout his domains, and his prerogatives allowed him to appoint colonels, authorise recruitment, and dismiss whomever he pleased. His personal status as Duke of Friedland, Sagan and Mecklenburg placed him second only to the six electors of the empire. Rumours abounded that Wallenstein, having defeated the Danish king and his sympathisers and ensured Habsburg's success, was setting his sights on bigger things. And rumours also abounded that Ferdinand II, Holy Roman Emperor since 1618, would have little choice but to bow to his now all-powerful Generalissimo. But Wallenstein knew that the situation was not as rosy as others may have wanted to believe. He had three major problems, all of which overlapped. The first was the Edict of Restitution. We covered this in the last episode, so I don't want to spend too much time on it here, but suffice to say its unpopularity was well known, and that Wallenstein, as commander of the largest army in the empire, now possessed the unenviable responsibility of putting his emperor's wishes into practice by force, if necessary. Wallenstein, fully aware of the implications of the edict, and a staunch Catholic himself, was a pains to stress just how opposed to it he nonetheless was. A career soldier at heart, Wallenstein recognised that the edict would only serve to turn the Protestant and free-thinking sections of the empire against the Habsburgs, at a time when intervention was insisted upon in Italy. Joff Mortimer, in his book Wallenstein, The Enigma of the Thirty Years' War, notes Wallenstein's disapproval, but also his relative powerlessness. Quote, Wallenstein was simply not consulted during the preparation of the Edict of Restitution, nor in any meaningful way about the developing entanglements in Italy over Mantua. Hence, he was no more than a disapproving voice on the periphery of the most important events of 1629. And moreover, his disapproval was ignored. 
If this illustrates his lack of political power, it also shows the limits of his power in the military field. In both cases, he started with the clear intention of keeping himself and his army out of the resulting operations, but in both cases he was eventually forced to give way. Wallenstein recognised this situation in a letter to his banker in August 1629. I have received four different strict orders from the Emperor to lose no time in dispatching troops to Italy, and even though I do not think it advisable, I have obediently complied, because His Majesty has commanded it. Ultimately, Wallenstein was a soldier, and he had to obey the Emperor's orders. End quote. The edict was a significant problem for Wallenstein because it necessitated his army's continued existence at great personal cost, not just financially, but also in terms of his reputation behind the scenes. A smear campaign containing the most direct character assassination was in the oven, baked courtesy of Maximilian of Bavaria, Wallenstein's key rival of the period. Though on the same side, i.e. Ferdinand's, both Max and Wallenstein never saw eye to eye, and that wasn't just because they had never actually met face to face up to this point. Max was inherently jealous of Wallenstein's acquisition of power, and the reality that, because of Wallenstein, he was no longer as important to the Emperor anymore. Max of Bavaria had once commanded the sole army of the HRE, under the guise of the Catholic League and in the initial stages of the Thirty Years' War, this League army, as it was known, had ensured Habsburg's success, stamping out resistance from Frederick V of the Palatinate and his ever-changing alliance blocks. But since 1625, Max had been de facto replaced due to the creation of a new army of the Empire, under the command of Wallenstein and, unlike the League army, answerable only to Ferdinand himself. As the years progressed, Max of Bavaria grew more and more anxious that his own power and influence would be eclipsed, permanently, by this bohemian upstart. Jeff Mortimer explains that Max's issues with Wallenstein also went deeper than mere jealousy, though his jelliness is very apparent from the correspondences of the time, I assure you. Quote, Even so, there were some real issues. For the Catholic electors, one was Wallenstein's open opposition to the Edict of Restitution, which had also turned Father Wilhelm Lamoromani, the Emperor's Jesuit confessor, against him, while the burden of supporting his army was resented much more widely. Since the defeat of Christian of Denmark in September 1628, there had been no enemy in the field against the Empire, and thus arguably no need for an imperial army, certainly not one as large as Wallenstein's. The wars between Gustavus Adolphus and the King of Poland, between the Spanish and the Dutch, and between Spain and France over Mantua, were none of the concerns of the Empire, opponents contended, but the Empire was paying for involvement through the contributions levied to support Wallenstein's army, as well as suffering from all the other problems of garrisoning, billeting, and a licentious soldiery. End quote. John George and George William, respectively, made some noise that the exact same thing was happening with the League army, i.e. its unnecessary presence, given that no threat was present to the Empire, was also causing the same problems, albeit on a smaller scale to Wallenstein's. But the Catholic electors didn't concern themselves with that hypocrisy. They also had in mind that Wallenstein was putting in motion a plan set down by the Emperor, whereby, through the use of his giant army, he would subject their lands to Ferdinand's control. This plan of Wallenstein's, of course, was mostly fabrication. He may have said at one time or another that it would be nice if the empire was more centralised along the lines of Spain or France, but that's a far cry from implementing an era-defining plan aimed at recreating the HRE in Ferdinand's centralised image. Such a creation of a state was not within the capabilities of Wallenstein, who was far more concerned with the maintenance of his own duchies and territories and the continuation of the cash flow from them than with a harebrained scheme to conquer Germany in Ferdinand's name. It is interesting that the Catholic electors should begin to fear Ferdinand's power at this time, just when he was trying to implement the Edict of Restitution that had their almost universal backing. Wallenstein, as the enforcer of Ferdinand's power, was seen as the only figure capable of putting into practice what the electors had feared, i.e. the suppression of their constitutional liberties, which basically meant their own form of autonomy from the Emperor. The relaxation of the war's demands, viewed as possible now that the Empire no longer faced any external or internal threats, became the rallying cry of these electors, 
and it went hand in hand with the additional desire to see Ferdinand's base of power, Wallenstein's swollen army, cut down to size, or removed permanently. Events came to a head in Regensburg in a meeting which opened on the 3rd of July 1630. On paper, it seemed as though Ferdinand II would attempt to acquire the approval for his son Ferdinand III to succeed him, while in return the Catholic electors would ask for Wallenstein's army to be curtailed. The Protestant electors would not attend in person, as a form of protest against the edict, and because John George of Saxony worried that if they did attend, they'd be pressured by the Catholic majority of 5-2. to two. But both did send delegations to the obviously important event so as to remain informed. Initially, the meeting was dominated by the foreign parties, not just associated with the empire. As Mortimer explains, quote, Paradoxically, although Wallenstein's view of the Spanish had become more jaundiced, culminating in his opposition to their attack on Mantua, Spain supported him diplomatically. To the Spanish, attacks on Wallenstein were attempts to weaken the emperor, and hence the Habsburg party, while without him, the imperial army would be reduced in strength and effectiveness. Worse still, control might pass into the hands of Maximilian of Bavaria and the Catholic League, which was particularly undesirable, as Maximilian was not only anti-Spanish, but prone to dangerous dalliances with France. Conversely, French diplomats tried to undermine Wallenstein, and in this way they were supported by the papal representative, whose master's aim was to weaken Spanish influence in Italy, hence making him a supporter of French policy." The meeting progressed slowly, as these things tended to do, so that only on the 17th of July did the electors inform Ferdinand that their priority was Wallenstein, and the campaign against him was brought to the Emperor's attention not for the first time. The stipulations proposed by the electors left little doubt that they intended Maximilian of Bavaria to replace him, while the Emperor and his advisers were determined to not give up Wallenstein without a fight, and were certainly even less eager to hand the reins of power back to Max of Bavaria. On the 20th of July, the Emperor's advisers sharply rejected the Elector's terms, a reply softened only by the promise to improve the general situation in the Empire with regards to military discipline. However, this merely spurred the Catholic Electors on, and they spent the next ten days drafting a new document, detailing in its entirety all that Wallenstein had supposedly done wrong since its inception as commander in 1625. On the 1st of August, then they delivered this document into Ferdinand's hands personally, an act which seems to have taken Ferdy by surprise. He put it up for debate to his council. His council proved even less decisive than himself, and by the 7th of August, Ferdinand sent a curt letter in reply to the electors regarding military matters, but discreetly avoiding the Wallenstein issue. When the four recipients sent these letters straight back in protest, Ferdy knew he was in trouble. He turned to his religious advisor we encountered earlier, Lamaromani, who may have been influenced by the papal desire to see Habsburg Italian power curtailed. Lamaromani, still smarting from Wallenstein's embarrassing rebuttal of the Edict of Restitution, was perhaps not as objective as Ferdinand believed, and he gave the instructions to drop his commander lest he face the stonewalling of the electors when it came time to elect his own son. Ferdinand, after months of stalling, finally relented. He made up his mind to dismiss Wallenstein by the 13th of August. Philip IV of Spain likely lamented at this news, but he at least ensured Maximilian of Bavaria couldn't succeed Wallenstein's command. Nonetheless, without any other replacements available, the unthinking electors then passed command to Tilly, Max's general, but only after drastically reducing the size of Wallenstein's army by at least two-thirds, and then failing to even ensure that the troops remaining could in fact be paid. In return for this acceptance on the part of Ferdinand to dismiss his trusty general, the electors actually gave very little. No war was declared against the Dutch in support of Spain, and scant troops were sent to northern Italy, though they would soon be redirected back north to face a more immediate threat. Wallenstein, informed of Ferdinand's decision to dismiss him on the 22nd of August, but likely already aware of it thanks to his information network, was remarkably calm. To the Catholic electors, expecting a storm of resentment perhaps manifesting itself militarily, the Bohemian Duke's response was disarmingly pacific, 
What they failed to realise was just how strained Wallenstein had become over the past few months. Though at the technical peak of his power, Wallenstein knew full well that the money was drying up, and the sheer difficulties placed at his feet financially when one is in control of 100,000 plus men for an extended period of time were beginning to take their toll. Wallenstein, tired of the campaigns against him and the monumental costs he had sheltered financially since 1629, was likely a bit miffed that the Emperor had not fought harder to at least save his reputation. But he would have almost certainly have been relieved that the inherent problems of command, logistics, politics and the stresses that went with them were no longer his to bear. Though his enemies had in fact defeated him, Wallenstein believed he had been relieved of a great burden, stating, I thank God to be freed from the net. I am glad to my innermost soul about what they have decided in Regensburg, as it means I am able to escape this labyrinth. As a general of the Empire first and an entrepreneur second, Wallenstein simply lacked the skills to politically fight with his enemies, and he appears to have believed, not unreasonably, that his previous triumphs would speak for themselves, and that his service to the Empire would stand as an example of his loyalty. He likely didn't count on the inner jealousies and oppositions of the princes, but even when caught out, his relief is palpable. The previous months of warning the Emperor and his advisers about the impending dangers of Sweden, as well as being consistently ignored when he gave advice on policy, likely grinded his gears far more than being told he was free from the net. This net, an almost entirely financial one, had caused Fallenstein's stock to fall drastically in the years since becoming Ferdy's favourite general. Wallenstein's economic woes are important because they are a good representation of just how much the economics within the empire as a whole was breaking down around this time. Wallenstein's longtime principal banker, Hans de Witt, was at the centre of large-scale funding operations that advanced money to the imperial treasury in exchange for the rights to collect the agreed contributions from the empire's various cities and territories. I'm no expert on ancient Rome, but it sounds at least a little similar to the process of taxation in the Roman Empire, and how the tax collectors would bid to the state for the rights to collect the empire's taxes, and then go off and try to actually collect the money and make a fast book in the process. At the beginning of the Thirty Years' War, this process advanced by de Witt was relatively easy. Wallenstein relied on the money swirling around in de Witt's complicated network of cash, but because the places in question coughed up the money, this generally wasn't a problem. Of course, 10 plus years into the Thirty Years' War and things began to change. The places who owed money couldn't afford to pay because they were taking in less money themselves. There was generally less cash available in the Empire anyway, and de Witt's carefully balanced system began to implode under the weight of unreliable clients and impatient creditors. As the arrears mounted, de Witt couldn't make the payments to his business partners and this was because the parties of men that were sent out to pressure the places to send the money into the system that kept everyone happy were bringing back less and less from the already hard-pressed citizens of the empire at large. He faced bankruptcy, and this had a knock-on effect on Wallenstein, who depended on de Witt on an almost weekly basis for the financial shots in the arm that kept everything running smoothly. When these shots in the arm became less frequent and less effective, Wallenstein then ran into problems of his own, so that by mid-1630 he was eating into his own personal supplies of cash, and these were disappearing fast. De Witt attempted to pressure Wallenstein into moving the Emperor to act, and secured the whole system on which so many transactions and agents within and without of the Empire depended financially but Wallenstein no longer was in any position to do anything once he was dismissed by Ferdy at the end of August 1630. Wallenstein was thus understandably relieved to have saved at least a little of his own money from the financial catastrophe, but de Witt was not so lucky. Seeing the economic bomb that had just erupted, and seeing that his most valuable client Wallenstein could no longer save him, de Witt committed suicide before August was over. Perhaps the most incredible fact of the Regensburg meeting in summer 1630 was the elector's complete lack of consideration for Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden, and his freedom following the conclusion of his war with Poland. Thus, the third big problem facing Wallenstein ceased to be his problem following his dismissal, but it certainly overlapped every concern he had, and explains why he may not necessarily have believed that he would be dismissed. 
though he is feeling the financial pinch of the campaigns. How could the Empire first prepare for the threat posed by Sweden, and then respond to it militarily, if only Tilly with his unpaid army was present to answer Gustavus's invasion? In the following lengthy extract, Mortimer examines the near dream world that the electors were living in. Quote, the most amazing aspect of the whole Regensburg saga was that it was played out with total disregard for the threat posed by Sweden. The Emperor had sent his opening agenda to the electors on the 3rd of July 1630, and three days later Gustavus Adolphus landed on the Baltic coast with an army of 13,000 men, quickly joined by a further 4,000 men from the Stralsund garrison. On the 17th of July the electors sent their initial reply to Ferdinand and three days later, the city of Stettin opened its gates to the invaders. In the following four weeks, while the parties at Regensburg kept their sights on Wallenstein, Gustavus consolidated his position in Pomerania and frantically recruited soldiers. For reasons unknown, the commander of the large imperialist forces Wallenstein had placed in the area to guard against a landing did not stick to the plan to make an early attack on the Swedes, preferring a passive strategy of containment. By the time this news reached Memmingen, the decision to dismiss Wallenstein had been taken but no replacement had been appointed, so that there was no commander-in-chief to direct the campaign for the remainder of the season. The Emperor noted some senior officers of Wallenstein's discharge on the 13th of September, whereupon some officers began to break up their regiments on their own accord, while men deserted in large numbers from others. Many were only too happy to obtain alternative employment from the renowned Gustavus, and by late autumn, when the Emperor and the Electors went home from Regensburg, the Swedes had over 40,000 men and were secure for the winter. Despite the threat, and then the fact of Swedish intervention, the Emperor yielded to the pressure to dismiss his Generalissimo and disperse his army. No doubt the Catholic Electors calculated that the war would continue to be fought out in the north, far from their own domains as did Gustavus, but a year later the Swedes took Mainz, and six months after that they were in Munich." The short-sightedness of the electors following their support of the edict which turned Protestants against them, and then the insistence on removing Wallenstein, which left the Holy Roman Empire without an army to adequately defend itself, would be realised in the coming months. The Swedish storm, long predicted and feared by Wallenstein, was about to break across the Empire, and the Thirty Years' War would never be the same. Frederick V of the Palatinate had waited for the arrival of an army that would sweep through the empire and utterly transform its balance of power. For the longest time, as the imperial victories piled up and his allies melted away, these hopes appeared mere pipe dreams, but there was a certain level of confidence that Frederick could place in the other Scandinavian kingdom, which had spent the virtual entirety of the Thirty Years' War so far campaigning against Poland. Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden had spent so long campaigning against Poland because of the bitter history between the two. We covered this in earlier episodes on the Thirty Years' War, but for a brief recap, the kingdoms of Sweden and Poland had been tied together by the birth of a son, Sigismund, between the Swedish king John III and Catherine Jagiellonica of Poland. Here's what you need to know. Sigismund was a Catholic because of his Polish roots and this didn't sit well with John III's brother, Sigismund's uncle Charles. Charles then deposed him as King of Sweden while Sigismund was in Poland in 1598, with the effect that Sigismund was cut off from his Swedish inheritance. Charles, continuing the Vasa dynasty, essentially the royal family of Sweden, consolidated his rule in Sweden and became Charles IX in 1599. A son was born to him at around the same time that he was kicking Sigismund's Polish influences out, and he named this son Gustavus Adolphus, in honour of his father, 
who had been the first king of an independent Sweden with the wars that broke up the Kalmar Union with Denmark in the 1520s. Gustavus Adolphus II then came to rule in his own right once Charles IX died in October 1611. Inheriting a country, fresh off a war with Denmark, its all-powerful neighbour, and having to bear in mind the very real threat that Sigismund, now with a huge score to settle against his Swedish cousin, posed to the burgeoning Scandinavian kingdom. Because they were both cousins, Gustavus and Sigismund's ensuing war can be seen as something of a family affair. Both of them could claim the lineage of the Vasa line of Swedish royalty, and the splitting of this dynasty into distinctively Catholic and Protestant branches would shape Swedish-Polish relations for the next 70 years. Our view of this conflict, which has stayed mostly in the background of the Thirty Years' War, is but the earliest part of this long-running war between the two kingdoms for supremacy. But as you can tell from its early stages, it's quite a story. For the sake of convenience though, we're not going to delve into the ins and outs of the Swedish-Polish War. All we're really going to examine is the fact that it ended, for a period of a six-year truce in September 1629, leaving Sigismund of Poland free to assess the damage done to his state and begin planning to turn his attention to Muscovy in the east, while it left Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden free to turn his attention to the Holy Roman Empire and to put all of Sweden's new acquisitions to the test. Gustavus's accomplishments before the Thirty Years' War are often forgotten because of his awesomeness in battle, but suffice to say he already had good cause for being called the Great before he moved against the HRE. In 1611, he inherited a kingdom beset with internal and external problems, and, at the age of only 17, began to embark upon a historic process of consolidating his position at home, and meeting Sweden's challenges abroad. David Sturdy, in his book Fractured Europe, 1600-1721, notes on Gustavus's progress. Quote, As a boy, he met ambassadors, discussed politics with his father's advisors, and at the age of 15, began to administer his own duchy. His education was based on the classics, but he was also fluent in Swedish, German, Italian and Dutch, and he acquired a good grounding in Russian, Spanish and Polish. He also studied warfare and generalship. Charles IX had been a controversial monarch, accused by the aristocracy of autocratic tendencies. There was more than a little vindictiveness in this charge, for Charles had undermined the influence of the aristocratic king's council by working more frequently with an embassy of nobles, clergy and free peasants. When Gustavus Adolphus succeeded to the throne, he made a point of improving relations with the aristocracy. He accepted a charter which listed the abuses committed by his father and which imposed on Gustavus the obligation to restore the aristocracy to their rightful place in government. It also constrained him to introduce no new taxes without the consent of the aristocracy and other assemblies. End quote. Gustavus then revolutionised the recruitment system of Sweden in 1617 by splitting the country into eight zones and committing each of these regions to raise a defined level of troops for the crown. He also adopted military ideals from Mars of Nassau, that leader of the Netherlands we encountered in previous episodes. But he went one better than Mars by greatly expanding upon the use of cannons in warfare, especially light cannons. While the heavy cannons were expected to sit back and provide covering fire, the light cannons were designed for mobility and could be moved with a few men to any place on the battlefield, giving his soldiers a level of flexibility not yet comprehended by the rest of Europe's armies. Gustavus's early understanding of artillery here will render his later successes against Tilly's bloated League army easier to understand if you remember this fact. Gustavus also had the misfortune of inheriting his father's enemies abroad. Denmark, Poland and Russia all had Sweden on their hit list. And when Gustavus was crowned king in October 1611, his kingdom was losing the war with one, faltering in the war with the other and barely pursuing the war with the third. Gustavus turned this unfavourable situation around. He acquired breathing space from Denmark with an expensive peace treaty, whereby Sweden's war reparations made up a great percentage of the Danish king's revenues, but he also pursued the Russian and Polish wars with more vigour. David Sturdy analyses the Russian aspect of the war and what it gained for Sweden. Quote, Sweden used this period of anarchy to invade Russian provinces on the Baltic coastline 
Karelia and Ingria fell to Gustavus. To the new Tsar, Michael Romanov, whose priority was stability at home, peace with the Swedes had to be signed at any price. By the Treaty of Stalbova on 1617, Michael ceded these provinces to Gustavus. Russia was deprived of its outlet to the Baltic, whose eastern reaches were now controlled by Sweden. End quote. By turning the Baltic power balance on its head and sending Russia into retreat, Gustavus could focus on his troublesome cousin in Poland. It did not take long for Gustavus to attempt to exercise his diplomatic muscle too. In 1620, he signed an alliance with his former enemy, Tsar Michael of Russia, while he also married the sister of the Duke of Brandenburg, tying himself to the Holy Roman Empire just as the troubles between Ferdinand and Frederick were heating up. In 1621, Sweden captured the port of Riga in the Baltic, while the Swedish conquest of Livonia in 1626 was the ultimate triumph of the Polish-Swedish War. The war may have ended there, but if you remember from our previous batch of episodes, Albrecht of Wallenstein was determined to maintain Polish forces as a distraction against Swedish intervention in the Empire. Now comes the time to introduce you to a new source that I've been poring over since this special began. Boris Fedorovich Porchnev was a Soviet historian who wrote a book regarding Russia's participation in the Thirty Years' War, as well as its relationship with Sweden. It looks almost exclusively at the political interactions between the states, and is a fascinating book for that very reason. The translated, edited version I possess was sourced on request from my college library, so I don't know how easy it'd be to come across a copy yourself. But if you find a way, go for it. Since if you're anything like me, you'll find the revelations of this book absolutely fantastic. Its name is Muscovy in Sweden in the Thirty Years' War, and we'll be looking at it for that, as well as a number of other purposes. For now, though, we're going to look at Porchnev's take on Inter-Habsburg aid, namely the forces Wallenstein used to reinforce Sigismund and ensure that the Swedish-Polish war continued. Quote, Wallenstein was mortally afraid of Swedish intervention in Germany. As early as the Brussels Congress of the Habsburg Coalition in 1626, the decision was made to give covert military help to Poland to keep Sweden's forces tied up. From 1627, a substantial part of Einstein's army was stationed in Pomerania. So, Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. But from there could come to the aid of the Poles. Swedish vessels were set on fire in the Pomeranian ports. In 1629, 10,000 men operated in Prussia alongside Sigismund's army against the Swedes. Gustavus Adolphus's plan to end the war with Poland quickly was thus frustrated. End quote. Gustavus couldn't take action against the empire so long as he was tied up with Poland, but there was hope that his attentions would soon be pointed in Germany's direction. The siege of Stralsund in 1628 forced Sweden into the middle of imperial affairs, 
because Gustavus feared, above all, the success of the empire here would lead to Habsburg expansion into the Baltic. And virtually the only thing that he and his Danish rival Christian IV could agree on was that the Habsburgs in the Baltic was a very bad thing for all involved. To be honest, though I've been looking forward to covering Gustavus' entry into the Thirty Years' War since I began this special last August, I'm now a tad apprehensive as to where and what I should begin with. I still feel like a bit more background is necessary. Not in Gustavus' case per se, but for the diplomatic history that led to the event of Swedish intervention. Since this podcast is supposed to be concerned primarily with diplomacy, I feel it would be wrong to just jump into Gustavus' military awesomeness without looking at the very interesting international backdrop to it. So let's go. Our primary resource for this venture will be Pershnev's book, Muscovy and Sweden in the Thirty Years' War, 1630-1635, that we encountered earlier. Mainly because no other source I have comes close to pulling you in with all the details as he does. Again, you really need this book. The story of how Russia came to be is both interesting and unbelievable. From 1550 to 1700, the Tsardom of Russia expanded and absorbed new land, roughly the size of the Netherlands, each year to reach the Pacific Ocean by 1700, after having originated as the mere Principality of Muscovy under the suzerainty of the Golden Horde, otherwise known as the Mongols. As if that past sentence wasn't crazy enough, the Muscovy, or Tsardom of Russia, the terms are interchangeable, which we encounter in our narrative, has just endured years of being the virtual pawn in Swedish-Polish games. And yet, by the beginning of the 1700s, will throw away the rulebook and establish itself as the dominant East European power, ahead of both Poland and Sweden. But this is not the Russian History Podcast, so let's resume our story in 1618 after the Russian Tsar Michael Romanov has signed the Peace of Dulino with Poland, and lost much territory in the process. The year before, Muscovy signed the Peace of Stalbova with Sweden after English and Dutch mediation, which reduced the harsh Swedish terms somewhat. From this point on, Tsar Michael, who was the first Tsar of the Romanov dynasty that served as Russia's royal family and would be eradicated by communist revolutionaries in 1918, set about positioning his state squarely against the Habsburg camp. What this meant was that he was now something of an ally to Gustavus's Sweden. We learned earlier that the two signed an alliance in 1620, demonstrating that it did not take very long for this enemy of my enemy is my friend cliché to be realised, even if that new friend was your enemy only a few years before, if that makes sense. The fruits of this alliance was only really experienced though in 1629, when Sigismund and Gustavus's respective states were reaching the end of their chain of wars, and a foreign influence was needed to end them officially. This foreign influence was the indefatigable French foreign minister, Cardinal Richelieu, who saw dollar signs when it came to Swedish involvement in the Thirty Years' War. Richelieu knew that in order to achieve a lasting truce between the two, he would have to work his diplomatic muscles extra hard. So he sent his diplomat, Baron Charnace, into Poland to appeal to Sigismund, as Porshnev notes. Quote, the diplomat was to tell Sigismund that, in offering to mediate for the conclusion of peace, His Majesty is guided chiefly by the interests of the King of Poland, for if the Swedish King allies with the Muscovite, as is his intention, so His Majesty has learned, such an alliance can bring notable harm to the Polish King. This was Richelieu's idea to frighten Poland with the prospect of a Swedish-Russian military alliance or with two enemies at the same time, even while the war with Sweden alone was proving hard to keep up. Charnace convinced the Poles that Louis XIII of France knew on good authority that the Tsar of Muscovy had decided to break the truce that winter and march a powerful army into Poland, so that Poland would have two strong enemies to cope with at the same time. End quote. In actual fact, Richelieu was not making up the idea of a Russo-Swedish alliance set against Poland. He was merely exaggerating the info from his contacts that he had received. Russia had been burning for revenge since the 1618 Treaty of Dulino had deprived her of her western territories, and she had burned hotter still with rage as Sigismund of Poland continued to claim the Russian crown for his son. Just as Richelieu had sent Charnace to Poland, he also sent another diplomat to Moscow 
to see if the Russians could be persuaded to act against Sigismund after all. This, as I'm sure you've gathered, is a tad dishonest. Rushaloo can hardly ensure that his king has the best interests of the Polish king at heart when he's actively seeking to bring other countries to war against him, but such was the duplicity of the time. Unfortunately for Richelieu, though, the Poles discovered that a diplomat had been sent to Moscow around the same time as Czarnace was received in Warsaw, and also noted with much disgust that this Russian visitor had been sent by Richelieu. Richelieu noted that this was the case, and though he probably blushed a little bit that he'd been basically found out, he assured the Poles that his agent had been sent to Moscow on purely commercial grounds. The Poles couldn't prove that Richelieu was lying, but they still didn't have to like what they saw. As Porshnev notes, quote, The mission and the information brought by Charnace greatly disturbed the Polish government, but it did not yield at once. While Charnace was being held up by endless altercations, a diplomatic trial balloon was quickly flown towards Moscow. We know about this from a letter of Tsar Michael to Gustavus Adolphus. In July 1629, there suddenly appealed at the Russian frontier town near Viziama two Polish envoys whose task was to restore diplomatic relations between Poland and Russia, which had been broken off in 1622. These envoys said that they were to be followed by a great embassy from the Polish king. This was undoubtedly an attempt by Sigismund either to ward off a blow or, at least, to find out for certain what the situation was. The second aim was definitely attained, for not only was the great embassy not accepted, but the Muscovites refused even to talk with the envoys. They were refused audience in Moscow, and ordered to quit the territory of Muscovy forthwith. End quote. So icy was the relationship between Russia and Poland in 1629 that the Russians didn't even want Polish diplomats on their soil. This fact seems to have proved to Sigismund, at least, that the Russians had to be gearing up towards cooperation with the Swedes against his state. For even though Czarnace left Poland at the end of July, he then received an urgent letter from Sigismund just as the Polish envoys returned, rejected from the Russian adventure. All the diplomatic obstacles collapsed and Sigismund, convinced that he now had to prepare for war with Russia, was eager to conclude the war with Sweden and asked the French for help to do so. Peace negotiations began on the 6th of August that year, culminating in the Truce of Altmark in September. Interestingly, just as Sigismund urgently signed the truce because he feared a two-front war against Sweden and Russia, Gustavus signed the truce because he wanted to intervene in Germany, and needed assurance that a. the Polish king would not attack him in the rear, and b. Russia would keep Poland busy. Thus, not for the first time, Richelieu had orchestrated a diplomatic masterclass where both powers in question believed they were reacting to the circumstances of the time, but where in reality they were merely victims of Richelieu's determined schemes to get what was best for France. As a result of Richelieu's work here, Sweden could oppose the Habsburgs and the Habsburg ally would be removed from continental affairs because of Russian entanglements. Very few real neutrals existed in Europe during the Thirty Years' War. If one wasn't an enemy of the Habsburgs, he was allied to them in some way, usually by marriage, and if one wasn't directly taking part in the conflict, then they had a very good reason not to be, such as England beginning to fall into its civil war. It's important to realise this, because otherwise it can be difficult to explain Russia's siding with Sweden a few short years after their war, or Richelieu's mobilisation of anti-Habsburg opinion based on political rather than religious grounds. The situation was surprisingly black and white especially as far as Richelieu was concerned. Either you opposed the Habsburgs or you married the Habsburgs, there was no in-between. Certainly, Russia helped support this view, though what really helped to advance it was the eagerness of Gustavus in persuading Tsar Michael that by fighting Poland, he was fighting the Habsburgs, and that if Russia fought Poland, she'd be doing the same. This meant that, according to Gustavus, Russia and Sweden possess the same enemies, and should thus possess the same allies. Porsnev notes on this, quote, Consequently, the ambassador's task is to explain that, in fighting Poland, Sweden is essentially fighting the empire, which stands behind Poland. What is projected, they claim, is a partition of Europe in which the empire will take Germany, Italy, France, Spain, England, the Netherlands, and Hungary, while Poland will take Prussia, Sweden, and Denmark. 
Catholicism will be introduced everywhere, after which a crusade will be launched against Turkey, whose territory will be divided between the Empire and Poland. End quote. The appeal to Russia to trap Poland so Sweden could have a free hand in the Empire was seen as the only course to Gustavus, who simply did not trust Sigismund of Poland to keep the truce between them if he spotted an opening. Gustavus did not act in 1625 for this very reason. Though he also desired greater autonomy within that campaign, the main factor that dissuaded him from invading the empire in 1625 was the fact that his wars against Poland were merely on hold. They were not actually over. Thus, as we saw, Christian IV of Denmark took his place instead. In 1629, Denmark was defeated, but Gustavus viewed the situation in the same vein. Swedish security depended upon Poland being distracted. Horsnev analyzes this view. Quote, in Gustavus Adolphus's view, it is incumbent on the Tsar to defend himself as other rulers are defending themselves, to act against the King of Poland and prevent him from helping the Kaiser. Then he, the Emperor, will forget to act against those rulers who stand for their beliefs and will give up his wicked design against our Christian evangelical and Greek faiths. For his part, Gustavus goes on, we, with our allies, will do everything to accomplish this purpose, by which they will be exalted above the other rulers, so as to humble and abuse those rulers before us. In other words, Russia was being invited to enter into an all-European coalition of powers against the threat to their independence and religion. The role assigned to Muscovy was to distract the forces of Poland for giving aid to the German Emperor, thereby facilitating victory by the allies over the Empire after which the Empire would be no longer able to help the Poles with their own plans of conquest. End quote. Gustavus always presented Poland as the tip of the iceberg in his correspondence to Russia. Just under the water, he maintained, was Poland's real source of power, the Habsburgs and their empire, powered also by Spanish silver and the influence of the Pope. In his numerous letters to the Tsar, Gustavus upheld that his war against first Poland, and then, when he begins his European campaigns against the Holy Roman Empire, were conducted to the benefit of Russia, because Russia would surely be overcome by the combined forces of the Habsburg camp if Gustavus had not continuously and tirelessly battled against them separately. Gustavus emphasised that the religious freedoms of the two states would be under jeopardy from aggressive Catholicism should the Habsburgs emerge triumphant and based the premise of closer cooperation on the unity of interest between orthodoxy, referred to as the ancient Greek faith, and Protestantism, or the evangelical faith. France, as a Catholic power, was unable to appeal to this aspect of Russia, and so Richelieu took a different approach, appealing to their common grounds in government, or in other words, the idea that both were absolute monarchs. Or, as Richelieu interestingly put it, these great sovereigns, the King of France and the Tsar's Majesty, are everywhere renowned, and there are no rulers so great and so powerful as they, and their subjects are all people who obey them in all things and do their rulers' will, not as it is with the English and the Brabanters who do whatever they like. Podcast footnote. The Brabanters that Richelieu mentions here likely refers to France's longtime ally in this instance, the Dutch which would make this letter an even greater example of Richelieu's duplicity, that he would talk so nastily about his allies behind their backs. End podcast footnote. Just in case Tsar Michael didn't get the message, Richelieu was trying to enmesh him into an alliance against the Habsburgs. The House of Austria, and especially the Emperor, are friends to the Polish king, who is himself kin to the Kaiser, and they act in concert with Sigismund, the Polish king, and give him no little aid. And this we know for certain, the Kaiser's daughter is to marry the heir to the Polish throne, and they help one another. And so, let the Tsar's majesty be in friendship and enmity with my sovereign King Louis, and stand together with him against their common enemies. Richelieu's proposal for a Franco-Russian military alliance really surprised me, though it appears as though Richelieu may have attended the same diplomatic school as Gustavus. Richelieu wanted to be doubly sure if Sweden did intervene in the Empire, the anti-Habsburg coalition could count on Russia to pull its weight in holding the attention of the Poles. Furthermore, the correspondence between Tsar Michael and Richelieu is awash with Richelieu trying to persuade Michael that even though both Sweden and Poland had seized parts of Russia before, 
it was Poland, and thus the pro-Habsburg camp, that was the greatest danger to Russia's prosperity, because... Although Gustavo Vasa has laid claim to your territory in previous conflicts, it is the Polish king who lays claim to your throne. It is apparent that the Polish king will act against your royal majesty should the opportunity present itself. And so I implore your majesty to prepare your armed forces for the commencement of hostilities with Poland. Additionally, I would ask your majesty to note the common grounds shared by Poland and the House of Austria, both of whom seek the triumph of a universal monarchy and the end of religious sovereignty. Richelieu had numerous proposals for undermining the Habsburg power base in Europe. One of these involved taking Spain's trade with the Orient, or Persia, with the help of Russia, and both co-opting the joint benefits that it would bring commercially and politically to their states. Richelieu also said very nice things about Gustavus to Michael, claiming that his French diplomats had been tremendously well received in Sweden, and informing the Tsar that France's allies included the Netherlands, Denmark, England and Turkey, as well as Sweden. Richelieu even had the foresight to use Transylvania as an intermediary between France and Russia, just in case the Tsar's orthodox advisers didn't like the look of letters coming direct from Catholic France. The practical use of an intermediary in international politics seems to have been largely psychological, but certainly Richelieu would utilise it again when dealing with Sweden. Just in case Gustavus's Protestant court also housed religious prejudices, Richelieu presented France's correspondence through its intermediary of Protestant Brandenburg. It's not important to really know this, but it is interesting that Richelieu had the foresight to do it. On every level, he was prepared to sweeten the deal, even if it was a little bit time-consuming and, in this case, seemingly a tad petty. 1629 almost seems to be the year when everyone woke up and realised that they belonged in two distinct camps, one pro and one anti-Habsburg. Richelieu and Gustavus Adolphus's correspondence with their allies, as we have seen also in their letters to Russia, establishes this as more fact than generalisation. The two of them certainly believed that there was two sides to this war, and that the Habsburgs and their Catholic supporters in the papacy were against them. This black-and-white struggle to the finish is also supported by Tsar Michael's policy. Up to now, you could be forgiven for thinking that Russia was the blind state that the rest of Europe had to rationally guide towards a sensible foreign policy, along the basis of who had done it the most damage and who was its nicest friend. But Porchnev reminds us that Russia was perfectly capable of forming its own foreign policy and that, from very early on, this policy was solidly against the Habsburgs, wherever they existed. Quote, Russia had a clearly defined position in the world system of states and peoples. All were divided into two categories, friends and foes, and to the latter category was assigned Poland, the papacy and the empire. This categorization is reproduced in many other documents and in the entire practice of foreign policy by Muscovy at the end of the 1620s and the beginning of the 1630s. Diplomatic considerations introduced only insignificant nuances into what was put into writing. In communications in 1628 to 1631 with the Netherlands, which, though at war with the Spanish half of the House of Habsburg, was in a state of neutrality with the Empire, what was emphasised was Moscow's hostility to Spain. Moscow even sought an alliance with the Netherlands on the base that the Spaniards, who were as much enemies of Holland as the Poles were of Moscow, were allied to the Poles. These nuances do not obscure, but rather enhance the fact that, in the last analysis, Moscow determined its attitude to any European state in accordance with whether that state belonged to the Habsburg or the anti-Habsburg camp. End quote. The years before, and the letters of Gustavus Adolphus to Tsar Michael urging him to strike against Poland together, were rejected not because Michael didn't want war against the Habsburgs, but because he wanted a coalition versus coalition war, consisting of pro- and anti-Habsburg lines therein. The problem for Michael with Gustavus' proposals for joint Russo-Swedish cooperation against the Poles as early as 1626 was that, only a decade before, Sweden and Russia were enemies. Hold on, you may be thinking. Michael was happy to sign an alliance with Sweden in 1620, so why would he suddenly balk at the idea of war against Poland with Swedish support? 
especially while Poland was also fighting off incursions from the Crimean Tartars and keeping a watchful eye on Turkey. The answer, according to Porzhnev, is a very simple one. Quote, Muscovy would have had no cause to show more favour to the Swedes than to the Poles if the Polish king, backed by the Habsburgs, had not, as earlier, shown aggressiveness by laying claim to further Russian territory and to the Russian throne, whereas the Swedish king had, in the Peace of Stalbovo, solemnly declared himself completely satisfied with his conquests and without any further claims on Russia. But what guarantees were there that this was all not just empty words, and Gustavus's anti-Habsburg declarations as well? that Sweden would not simply turn on Russia when Russia was sufficiently involved in a war against Poland. The only possible guarantee could be provided by the existence of a broader coalition. Muscovy would never have taken overt action if it had been left to move side by side against the Habsburgs with Sweden alone. This was perfectly understood, incidentally, by the Polish diplomats, and that was why King Sigismund, in his war with Sweden, showed no great anxiety regarding Russia's position until July 1629. End quote. Ironically, it was Russia's enemy that understood it the best. Despite Richelieu's persuasions and Gustavus's letters, Tsar Michael still remembered Russia's losses. Even though she was solidly anti-Hausberg, she still feared to act on her own, especially if that meant trusting one old enemy to defeat another. She would team up with Sweden, yes, but only if Sweden was a member of a broader coalition that would ensure the good behaviour of all involved. You know that Russia would not act without a coalition, but what you don't know is who set in motion the chain of events that would render this coalition possible. It is quite a story that in 1627, the Greek, Foma Kantakazine, left Constantinople for Europe. He was one of the men responsible for spearheading a new initiative designed at improving relations with the Ottoman Empire and a burgeoning state in Northeast Europe. His mission was to create a Russo-Turkish alliance. The Ottoman Empire had only very recently campaigned against the Poles. In 1622 the Ottoman Sultan Osman II was assassinated, and the Empire retreated inwards, until Murad IV ascended to the throne. At only 11 years of age, Murad was ruled through his council, which led to an inconsistent foreign policy. Thankfully for all concerned, the ethnic Greek, Foma Kantakazine, had the ear of the Sultan's inner council and this meant that Foma's policy became Ottoman policy for a brief period. It would not be the last time that a Greek influenced Ottoman affairs to such an extent. Foma ensured that Turkey took a hard line against its Habsburg neighbours, and sought to do this by building a good rapport with the enemies of the Habsburgs. In seeking to facilitate this, Foma went in person to Moscow, a journey which appealed to him because of the orthodox similarities between himself, being a Greek, and Russia. Foma was well received by a Russia always eager for allies where they could be found, even if they differed religiously. It is worth taking a moment to consider this. That states were placing political and power interests above religious interests was not wholly unheard of, but such behaviour was certainly in the minority. As the 17th century and even the Thirty Years' War progresses though, such behaviour becomes the norm. Interreligious cooperation did not begin here, but it is certainly striking to note that two very different states were willing to cooperate purely for the sake of combating their sworn enemy. Porzhnev analyzes the effect of what he refers to as Turkey's new Western policy, and how it led to a series of chain reactions that altered the Thirty Years' War. Quote, in 1628, in conjunction with Turkey's new Western policy, there arose in Moscow the idea of forming an Eastern European coalition made up of Transylvania, Turkey, Muscovy and Sweden, which would have had friendly relations with Denmark, the Netherlands and England, directed against the Polish Habsburg coalition. 
Moscow applied itself vigorously to realising this project, and undertook definite arrangements. When news of this development reached Richelieu, it served as an impetus to his dispatch of ambassadors to Eastern Europe and, moreover, to the reflection of his thinking of that same idea of an East European coalition. The next link in the development of Moscow's position was a negotiation with Swedish ambassadors, which took place in Moscow in March 1629. Gustavus had become convinced, through repeated diplomatic failures with Moscow, that Russian cooperation would not be attained, because the Russians would not break the truce of Dulino with Poland. Of course, Michael's pleas that he couldn't break the truce with Poland were a mere smokescreen, as we saw, to cover up the fact that he didn't trust Sweden to act in the interests of Russia in the event of a war. Sigismund of Poland recognised this fact, but Sigismund likely didn't count on the influence of the Ottomans in awaking Russian ideas for a coalition. With Turkey's membership, Transylvania could be brought into the fold. Poland and the Habsburgs would be opposed by a truly deadly enemy and, most importantly, the participation of these four actors meant that a coalition now existed. What this meant was that Russia now didn't have to worry about being stabbed in the back by Sweden. Coalitions had terms and rules to operate by, and to go against them was to go against all members of that coalition, which was something that Sweden would never do, even if Gustavus decided he wanted easy Russian pickings. But it went beyond that for Tsar Michael. The presence of a now forming coalition meant that other powers would stand beside it, against the Habsburgs, against Poland, and that those powers would use their resources to help their new allies. Powers like France, the Dutch and England, who had for so long sponsored one state at a time to take with the mantle of anti-Habsburg, now had a whole eastern coalition to throw their weight behind. The effects of this were almost immediate. Porchnev notes the clear link between the Ottoman coalition proposals from FOMA and the dismantling of Russia's timid foreign policy. Quote, the records of a French diplomatic mission to Moscow contain a document of exceptional importance, such as we do not usually have at our disposal in such cases. It amounted to something like a record of the discussion of the Swedish proposals, held in the absence of ambassadors in the Tsar's private rooms, between the Tsar and the boyars and officials who are most fully in his confidence. This record shows the direct and close link between the decision to break the Duninu truce and the proposals for alliance which had recently come from Turkey. The plan to form an East European coalition against the Habsburg coalition, which had arisen in 1627, here comes to fruition before our very eyes in March 1629. Here we find too the texts of addresses which the boyars and officials were to deliver in reply to the Swedish ambassadors. The latter were to be told that the Tsar sympathised warmly with the Swedish king's intention to take upon himself the hardest part of the common task, namely war with the emperor, and would enter into an alliance with him to this end. The Tsar had decided to help your sovereign and the other Christian sovereigns of the evangelical faith by all possible means, so that the evil designs of the emperor and the papists may not succeed. Besides giving the aid requested, they were also to promise that the duly new armistice with Poland would be broken. This was the decision by the Moscow government, which had very great importance for the course of the Thirty Years' War and for the fate of Europe. End quote. If we look at it from this angle, that a Greek spurred Russia into forming a coalition, which spurred Sigismund into making peace faster for fear of a two-front war, which spurred Gustavus into wanting to make war on the Empire, which spurred Richelieu into wanting to pay off and unify everyone closer together against the Habsburgs, then we can observe two things. First, a whole lot of spurring was done by that one Greek diplomat, and second, that Russia, although it is barely mentioned in most histories of the Thirty Years' War, possess a vast responsibility for what is about to take place. Without Russia coming on side, Sigismund never would have felt finally pushed into making a lasting peace with Sweden, and then Gustavus Adolphus would never have acted as he did in the Holy Roman Empire. So here we are again, back to the point where Sweden is just about to take the plunge. My apologies if you thought this episode was going to be all about Gustavus, but I'm sure you'll agree, spending time on the diplomatic events that led to Sweden's time in the sun were more than worth it. Diplomacy is what we're all about after all, 
and this has to be the greatest diplomatic experience I've had so far in this special. You should have seen how excited I got finding all this out. Actually, perhaps it's best that you didn't. Regardless, join us next time for episode 25.65, because I don't need to sleep anyway or have a life, and we'll finally cover Gustavus in all of his glory. My name is Zach, and you've been listening to the When Diplomacy's Fail special on the Thirty Years' War, episode 25.6. Thanks! deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.